Today, our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. So verse 28 starts with, after he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Well, I think you know and I know that any time we read something like this in a passage that references something that was just said or done before, then we have to take a look at that, at least for a second. So what, after he had said this, what had he said? After he said what? There's a couple of stories that he tells. Well, the first one is the story of Zacchaeus. Everybody knows this, the song, right? Does anybody want to sing it? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I hope you at home that are watching are singing along with us. Everyone in the congregation is. It's really, that's a sweet moment. I love it. Thank you. And the second thing that Jesus says is he tells a parable about a prince. He's a ruler. He's a prince. And he goes into another principality to be crowned as king. Now, before he leaves, he leaves money behind with his servants, and he tells them to use this money to trade with and to make more money. And then he goes to this foreign land to be crowned king. So he gets there, and the people there despise him. The text doesn't tell us why he's despised, although we can guess, as you'll see in just a second. But they despise him, and they tell the other royals that are there, we refuse to let this man rule over us. We don't want him as king. He's made king anyway. He comes back home, and two of his servants have invested the money that he gave them, and they are rewarded for investing wisely. The third servant kept the money to himself, didn't invest it. The king gets mad and takes away his money. But here's the kicker to this parable, and I need you to remember this with me. At the end of this parable, the king demands that the people in that distant land who spoke out against him, he wants them brought before him in his land, and he executes all of them. Not a nice guy, but I need you to keep that in mind. He's a king who executes those who disagree with him. So we have a little bit of background. Now I want to go into a little bit of context. I want to talk a little bit about what the expectations might have been of the people that were marching into Jerusalem with Jesus on this donkey. These people are waving their palm branches. They're laying down cloaks uh, before him so he can walk over, the, the colt can walk over the coats. 
And so this world is very much a world where religion and politics are meshed. It's still that way in that part of the world. Now, I would say this is foreign to us as Americans, but I don't know how foreign that is to us. I mean, it's not supposed to mesh, right? It's supposed to be separation of church and state, but we don't really practice that, do we? I mean, I, I grew up at a high school that we had a prayer before every football game at, at, the, at the stadium. Did anybody else grow up in the world like that? Public prayer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at my sixth grade class, our teacher read a Bible story every day before she started class. Anybody have that? I remember her saying, too, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I was like, what, what? I mean, we were all, you know how small my town was, right? Like 1,500. We knew everybody. Nobody was going to turn her in. The Jewish people were monothe monotheistic. However, there's a lot of evidence that tells us that they really were not, but that's another sermon for another day. But they did believe that they were God's chosen people. Their prophets had told them over the centuries that if they continued to sin in the ways of following after other gods or uh, neglecting the poor and the marginalized of society, that they would fall into an oppressor's hands. And we see that over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures where the Hebrew people turn away from God to other gods. They neglect their poor, their widows, their orphans, and God delivers them into an oppressor's hands. So, they are still at this time in their history in the hands of an oppressor. Their oppressor is Rome. They don't have freedom. They belong to Rome. They are ruled by foreign overlords. So, to them, they're still being punished. They have no freedom. And so they're asking themselves, now how does this punishment end? They've seen the stories, heard the stories in the Old Testament of how those people, those Jewish people, how their oppression ended, but how is theirs going to end? That subjugation in the Old Testament was ended at some point. When is their ending for this oppression? And so for them, Jesus was this first century prophet announcing God's kingdom. And Jesus behaved like a prophet of old, like in Ezekiel, like a Jeremiah, like an Isaiah. So maybe he was the real deal. Maybe this was the king they had been waiting for, their savior, their king from the Davidic line. The term the kingdom of God, which is what he said over and over and over again, is such a loaded term. And I believe, at least I was under a misunderstanding of what this term meant for a lot of years in my life. I always was taught and thought that when the kingdom of God was said or the kingdom of heaven was said, that the author had to be talking about something up there, something out yonder when we die. But these first century Jewish people, they would not have heard it that way. To them, it would have sounded like there's a kingdom and it's coming here. And there's going to be an overthrow of this Roman government. And we are going to have a king again of our own. A king from a Davidic line. God will rule us once again. But just like in times past, when these new, when, when, when the Davidic king or when the, uh, the Jewish king came into power again, there was an overthrow of some sort and it was violent. So they had to be thinking, all right, we've got to get our swords ready. We're about to overcome the 
overthrow the Roman government because we've got our dude. We've got our Davidic line dude. And we're going to do this. They were looking for someone who was not Tiberius, who was not Pilate, who was not Herod Antipa. They were looking for the Son of God to instigate, to institute this new government, a literal kingdom on earth. Ruled by God through God's anointed king, just like King David. This kingdom of God meant the overthrow of the empire. It was a political term, and it was a threatening term to Rome, for Rome, because Jesus spent his entire ministry trying to, trying to tell them that his way was not one of violence. The kingdom of God was breaking into history but it was not going to look like they expected. They were expecting some violence. And it's important that we don't miss that when our expectations do not match the reality. I asked you on Facebook on Friday to share some stories of when your expectations did not match reality and how that makes us feel. We get our hopes up. The Jewish people were getting their hopes up that this was about to become this really thing, this big thing. They were going to be overthrowing this government with their Davidic king. But that did not happen. I would invite you for just a couple of minutes. Can any of you think of a time when you had an expectation of something didn't happen? and how that made you feel. Would anybody like to share a story of that this morning? Jesus is going up to Jerusalem with his followers, and this is the, at the beginning of the celebrations of Passover, and the kingdom of God is at hand for his followers. But here is the thing. Just like you saw those children come in this morning with palms, there were also some children that came in with shields. Because as Jesus is coming in from one side of Jerusalem, very humble, very meek, Rome is coming in on the other side with swords and shields and helmets. Why? Because of the Passover. You see, the Roman governor, Pilate, he did not live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea, which was 70, 77 miles away. He didn't live there. Jerusalem was ruled by the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest, and they were used to keep the peace, to keep harmony in the land, to keep the law. But when it came to Passover time, Pilate and his Roman army came down because the people could get rowdy during that time. They're having, it's jubilation for them in anticipation that at some point their Passover will happen for them. So if you're celebrating something that uh, is liberating for you, well, one time you were liberated by an oppressor, and that's what you're celebrating for a week, well, you know what? They might just get too rowdy. So we better send the swords and the shields down just to kind of say, don't mess with it. Don't do it. There's consequences if you try to do this. Because there had been revolts in the past, and they never knew when it could happen again. So they went to Jerusalem to ensure that Caiaphas and the other priests kept the peace. 
That Roman army was there as a deterrent. That implied threat was right there. Don't get foolish. Don't get foolish. And when you're standing there in an army with shields and a helmet and a sword, you got that message. So Jesus, coming from the peasant village of Galilee, led a band of people to Jerusalem to celebrate the week's festivities. His procession is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. And on the other side of Jerusalem, Pilate is leading the imperial procession into town. At the same time, who knows, but it's possible. And I will say that my intention for the children that came in with the shields was to play the imperial death march by Star Wars <laughs> until people... I, I know, I know. And I, and I have to tell you this, I, because I'm not very smart about these things, there's copyright issues and uh, we couldn't do it, but, you know, we could have turned the tape off for a few minutes and done it, I guess. But anyway, and Sarah, like at 10 till 10, is like, I think I could play this on the piano. And so I was like, it's okay, it's, it's, it's okay. Anyway, moving on from that. So... Matthew tells us why, let me just say this, all four Gospels tell this story, but they tell it a little bit different. Matthew tells us why Jesus rode in to, on a donkey. It came from the prophet Zechariah. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, the prophet being Zechariah, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As Amy Jill Levine says, this term humble from Zechariah does not mean meek or gentle. It means poor or afflicted. This king, Jesus, does not enter with the trappings of royalty or military parade or a 21-gun salute. In the Greek, this word actually means someone in authority who does not lord it over others. I don't know if you're like me, but when I heard that that Greek word meant someone in authority who does not lord it over others, I had to stop for just one second. What does it mean to have someone in authority over us who does not lord it over us? Has anyone had an employer that did that, that used their authority as lording over you, right? Maybe a parent? A spouse? That's a wealth of a word right there, guys, and we're going to come back to that because I want that, I want that to sink in. But I thought probably the most significant one person we could think about in this context is a pastor. And we'll get personal for just a second in the room with all of us. Have any of you had a pastor that used their authority and lorded it over you. Can I see a show of hands? Yeah. Let that sink down. You know, Jesus could have very well processed in Jerusalem with all of the pomp and circumstance that Pilate did. He was an authority, even over Pilate. But he chose not to. He chose to identify with those who do not have power, who had no power, who does not have money and who does not have a say and a way to heal their own diseases, diseases and afflictions. I googled uh, something this week called Macho Jesus. I need y'all to Google that when you get home. 
If you want to Google it right now, feel free. I'm not judging. Macho Jesus. Is this macho Jesus on the cross with like muscles for days and like a, a nine pack, if that's even possible. You know, quads like two hawks of ham on the cross, man, die. Macho Jesus. Y'all are looking at it, aren't you? All right, all right. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, we Americans have got this in our head that that's who Jesus is. Macho Jesus. Somebody tell me if there's anything in this scripture that you have heard so far that indicates to any of us that this is macho Jesus. I've told you before about the book Jesus and John Wayne. You need to read it. You just got to read it. Jesus chose to not pick up a sword. Jesus chose to not assemble an army with swords and shields. Jesus chose not to parade his authority over anyone. Jesus chose to prioritize community rather than authority. And Jesus is showing his followers a different way from that parable of that king he told them about earlier. That king used his authority to lord over others. That king prized power more than community. That king prized absolute control rather than humility. And that king absolutely did not side with the poor and powerless. Jesus just showed them a different way. Jesus is the antithesis of that king and John Wayne. In the book of Luke, we read that the people said, Blessed is the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew, the people say, Hosanna to the son of David. In John, and John, by the way, is the only um, depiction of the Palm Sunday that specifically says palm branches. In John, the writer says, Hosanna to the son of David, the king of Israel. And in Mark, Hosanna is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Amy Jill Levine says that, Hosanna technically means, save us please. The tone sounds desperate. The end of themselves, begging for mercy. Amy Jill Levine also says that we might wonder, from what do we seek salvation? From sin, yes, but also from pain, from despair, from loneliness, from poverty, from oppression. The Passover is celebrating freedom from oppression from their Egyptian masters. The setting of the, passion, of the Passion narrative is about salvation from slavery. I don't think Jesus' people in that moment as they're processing with him in Jerusalem are asking to be saved from their sins, to go to heaven when they die. They weren't asking Jesus to teach them the sinner's prayer. They were asking for relief from a hell that they were living in in that moment. However, those words that the people used, they were a problem. They were a problem. Why? Blessed is the king. Hosea to the son of David, the king of Israel. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. This terminology would have been a lightning rod for the Roman imperial powers. 
but not just for Rome, but for the local and priestly powers too. So let's talk about imperial powers for just a moment. Jerusalem did not have a ruler from Rome in the city. Pilate lived 77 miles away. Herod Antipa was not, he's called king in the scripture, but he was not actually a king. After Herod the Great died, uh, Israel was split into parts. And so there were different tetrarchs that were over different prevent, uh, uh, provinces of the country. So Herod ruled over Galilee, Herod Antipa. He was 100 miles away. So again, who's keeping the law and the order <clears throat> and running the city of Jerusalem? It's the, ruler, the Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, but also it was the rich and wealthy of Jerusalem, the upper elite, the upper echelon, the haves versus the have-nots. Rome trusted wealthy families, and they were essentially given free reign as long as they were loyal to Rome. These particular Jewish men were the haves, not the have-nots. And they were the ones that collected the taxes. And then there also were the priestly powers. There was the temple and Caiaphas, the high priest. Roman, Rome's system of governance was by local domination, through the elite and through the temple. And the temple was at the heart of local collaboration of Rome. And Rome expected the high priest... Caiaphas and the temple authorities to keep it quiet. No uprisings. Keep it peaceful. Keep the money coming in. We're trusting you and we're rewarding you. Make it happen. And the implication there is, or else. To call Jesus the king of Israel is essentially saying the king of the Jews. Who is the king of the Jews to the people? Well, that's Herod of Antipas. Herod of Antipas. Again, he wasn't technically a king, but he was lord, ruler over the area of Galilee. He was thought of as king by the New Testament writers. You know, he was the one that divorced his wife and married his brother's ex-wife, and John the Baptist got in trouble with him. So you know Herod Antipas probably had no love for Jesus because he knew Jesus and John were linked. And Herod was in town because even though Herod was an Arabian, he was a practicing Jew, so he was there for the, for the Passover. This was also a treasonous thing to say, to call him king of Israel, because the Jews have no king but Rome. They are captives of Rome. They are pushed down into a majority peasant class by Rome. They have no king. Second, the phrase, who comes in the name of the Lord which is what Renee mentioned earlier, this empire only has one lord, and that's Tiberius. Only one divinely appointed ruler, Tiberius. Third, the phrase, Hosanna to the son of David, that represents regime change. If you're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, that's telling Rome, oh, you're getting ready to overthrow us and put a Davidic person in place. We might have some trouble here. All this king and name of the Lord and son of David was troubling because with that language, it is implied that God is backing all of this up. But they can't be because Rome had been chosen and ordained by God to rule. Not them. Rome had been. The Romans had used the stories 
in the poems of Virgil, Horace, and Ovid to prop themselves up as divinely appointed by God to rule and rule forever. According to Marcus Borg, they had announced their God-ordered mandate to rule without limits or time or place and to rule not just the Mediterranean but the world. They believed that they had been given the sovereign right to worldly conquest through any means necessary, militarily, economic, political power. I'm not going to belabor, belabor this point, but I am going to say this. Beware anyone that tells you that they have all authority and it came to them directly from God. That's a scary place. But this Jesus guy was using their language. He was processing into Jerusalem with an entourage of followers who were laying their cloaks down on the road, waving branches and shouting, Hosanna to the king. And Rome was coming into Jerusalem too. It's possible that they were laying their cloaks down and singing Hosanna to the king. So you and I have the choice over 2,000 years later about after that Palm Sunday, how will we walk through life? What's the bottom line for us? Is it to serve others or to be served? When we are given positions of authority, do we lord that over others or find ways to be in authority without being gross about it? Who will we follow? Who will we be brave enough to speak out when our political leaders are not calling us to the better angels of our nature? Will we be brave enough to call them out when the marginalized get left behind? Can we find ways to see one another behind the labels of Republican or Democrat that we carry? Can we be led by the Spirit to know what fights should be fought and when we should let Caesars be Caesars? Jesus did not spend all his time on earth fighting the government, although he certainly spoke out against it. But other times he said, let Caesar be Caesar. Can we pray to have that kind of discernment? I, along with probably a lot of you, have watched in horror over the past few years over this white Christian nationalist movement. You've seen it on Facebook. I've seen it on Facebook. That language that is posted. Some people that I know, care, and love are part of that. And it, it would tell you that they're not but they certainly use some language that, that lets you think that. And it has broken my heart, which I'm sure for a lot of you it's broken your hearts too. The racism, the disregard for humanity, the homophobia, the transphobia, the misogyny. I see pastors on Twitter tell on themselves over and over again, using their authority to lord it over the people in their congregation that this is how they should see the world, that this is how they should see America, that this is how they should feel. People are saying those quiet parts out loud now. They're calling evil good. People say that God agrees with them, divinely appointed presidents and governors, etc. On our Palm Sunday, Jesus mounted a public demonstration against Roman imperial control starting from Bethage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Olives and going toward Jerusalem. In an anti-triumphal entry, he rode into Jerusalem from the east on a donkey in a symbolic, subversive demonstration against the Roman governor Pilate, arriving from the west on a stallion. 
Pilate came from his headquarters at coastal Caesarea to overpower the Passover crowds if necessary. Jesus came from Galilee to empower those same crowds if possible. What parade are we marching in? The one with no power and yet with all the power to change and change us all? Or the one with all the power and yet no power to ever really change us and certainly not change us all? Which one are we marching in today? That's the question for all of us.